0: to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance axis deer populations on Maui From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. According to the News and Observer, an aggressive type of goose, the Egyptian goose, is an invasive species of waterfowl which is native to Central and Southern Africa, and it has started establishing itself in Arkansas. I know that's a lot to take in, but relax, we don't have to call out the Arkansas Home Guard to watch out for fresh flights of African geese. According to the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, Egyptian geese were once popular in zoos and aviaries, but some managed to escape and find a suitable home in the wild. Hmm, interesting. How did these birds manage to escape into the wild? Could they have used their wings? Ah, They fly now! They fly now! They fly now! now. Hmm. Anyway, Egyptian geese numbers are on the rise and the state of Arkansas is concerned that this aggressive, non-native species could cause competition problems with native waterfowl as well as cause conflict issues with farmers and golfers. Contrary to this concern, there is no open season nor plans for an open hunting season for Egyptian geese, no matter how aggressive, hungry, or poopy they apparently are. The species has a beige chest and dark brown, dark orange, black, and white feathers on its back. Distinctive dark brown patches surround its eyes, the beak is pink on top and black on the bottom, which is a long way of saying, if it's not from Canada, call it in which is exactly what the USGS and the state of Arkansas wants you to do. Sightings should be reported to the Egyptian Goose Research Project at pmm005 at uark.edu and cr065 at (coughs) uark.edu. This week, we've got turkey, infrastructure, firearm safety, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week, and my week was a good one. The snort dog and I packed into the elk woods looking for mule deer. We found a bull elk way back in, and while he didn't give me forever to think about it, I decided to let him keep walking, as I really just wanted a mule deer. Of course, after that, for the next three days of walking around, I saw nothing. On top of that, the wind was blowing, and instead of getting wind and frost nipped, it was 60 degrees. Save on everything at Christmas in July! I love cold weather hunting. I love hunting in November, and it's just hard for me to get in the November hunting mood when it's rain instead of snow. This was Snort's first elk hunt. I would say she does not enjoy it. Despite finding several grouse, she didn't like the snap of the tarp in the wind at night, and I believe she just was pretty bored about everything. I have a small variety of sleeping bags for different adventures. I brought a lightweight quilt with me on this uh, particular trip, and it's just easier to throw a dog underneath than a traditional sleeping bag. The wind would blow so hard underneath my tarp setup that it would levitate the quilt perfectly horizontally about 18 inches above us, and then it would settle back down. Normally, this would be irritating, but when you go to bed at 7 p.m. in the dark, you still get plenty of sleep with this type of stuff happening. So, you know, you laugh. Uh, what else? I ran out of stove fuel, so when it was time for my freeze-dried meal, which on this particular adventure I decided to clean up some really old, off-brand freeze-dried stuff that I had kind of accumulated over the years. so watery, and yet there's a smack of ham to it. It's hot ham water. That way I could save my tasty stuff for friends on the next adventure. Anyway, uh, no stove fuel, so every time I wanted to heat up a meal, I had to start a fire, which the next time you dump a camp cup of hot water into a fire, you'll notice that uh, the campfire flavor really infuses itself. And that little bit of smoke actually helped some of the crappy meals I was eating. And that, friends and neighbors, is how I spent my 39th birthday. No shots fired. Very few animals seen. In the rain that should have been snow, watching my blanket levitate above me. Listening to my tarp snap in hellacious wind. Eating bad, old, freeze-dried food and drinking cold coffee in the too warm and wet morning. It was great. Wonder what 40 will look like. And if you're wondering, yes, that Black Rifle Instant Coffee is pretty darn tasty cold. I could write a whole book about backpack coffee. Next up, got some listener feedback. A little while back, I posted yet another picture of Snort on the old Cal 406 Instagram page, and I happened to notice this exchange in the comments between Ben1357.9 and Knife Dog Cowboy. As far as I can tell, these two people uh, do not know each other. Ben writes, I love your dog. I lost my dog on Friday. She was 15. Happy hunting. Knife Dog Cowboy replies, I'm sorry. Losing dogs is the worst. Ben says, It feels like losing my best friend. Knife Dog Cowboy says, I know, man. Last summer, I lost my 15-year-old chocolate lab that had gone with me everywhere. He was a good boy, and I miss him every day. Labs are the best. Sorry for your loss. Dogs in general are just hard to lose. I'm sorry you lost yours. I felt obliged to include that this week because we can all, including myself, stand to have a good reminder of how far simple acts of kindness and empathy can go. We need more of that on our social media channels and on the internet in general. Happy holidays, right? Thanks for listening and thanks for being part of the community, Ben1357.9 and Knife Dog Cowboy. All right, moving on to some housekeeping. As you know, we have great stuff across the Meat Eater brands. First Light, Phelps, FHF, and of course the Meat Eater store itself. Now, I sincerely wish that you are out in the woods or in the duck blind instead of online shopping. However, here is a chance for free money that you should know about. If you go on to any of the websites that I just mentioned and fill out a wish list and send it around to someone that would be interested in seeing it, you could win $2,000 in-store credit to be used across all brands. If you just want to save money, FHF and First Light have discounts as deep as 30% off and Phelps as deep as 50% off. At TheMeatEater.com, every order gets a free effed-up old deer stand calendar when chosen at checkout, free shipping over 100 bucks. We have uh, some bundled up stuff that everybody really likes, make it a little easier, and I'll save you some cash. The Essential Meat Crafter Knife, which is a sweet, sweet tool, is bundled with the Complete Guide to Butchering and Big Game Cooking, Volume 1 or 2. That'll save you some cash. So, you know, look for those things. Another thing that you should look out for Diamondback Rifle Scope, which is a great workhorse rifle scope that Vortex makes, is $100 off. You can slap that thing on a twenty-two or a out 6 It's a handy scope to have around and swap out and put on stuff or have as a backup. I have several. And then all sorts of other things. And all that stuff expires on the blackest of Fridays, the Friday after Thanksgiving. <laughs> cool? Cool. Moving on to the legislation desk. Just a quick legislative update. If you follow political news, you probably saw that President Joe Biden just signed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, otherwise known as Biden's $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Some folks really like this bill, others not so much, no surprise there. If you care about the outdoors, you should know that it includes infrastructure-related improvements that benefit hunters, anglers, and wildlife. As per a great rundown published by Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the bill includes funding for reclaiming abandoned mines, improving wildlife connectivity, and improving forest service roads and trails. The bill authorizes $11.29 billion for an abandoned mine reclamation fund to restore land and water degraded by coal mining. It also includes $4.67 billion in new funding for the plugging, remediation, and reclamation of orphaned oil and gas wells. When a mine or well shuts down, it doesn't stop polluting the environment without maintenance. In fact, according to BHA, those mines are the single largest source of pollution in the United States. An estimated 40% of western watersheds are contaminated in some way by mine tailings and mine runoff. In addition, the bill provides $350 million for habitat connectivity. In other words, the infrastructure bill doesn't just build bridges for humans. Highways are great for people, but animals haven't figured out how to look both ways. These bridges are good for the animals. They're good for the people, too. Every year, about 200 people die from animal car collisions. Wildlife overpasses do a great job. Plus, the fewer animals on the side of the road, the more animals available to hunters. I have eaten quite a bit of roadkill, but I'll admit, while roadkill is convenient, it's not for everyone. I accidentally ran over it. It's a Christmas miracle. Finally, this new infrastructure bill allocates $250 million to the Forest Service Legacy Roads and Trails Program. This program helps upgrade and repair forest roads to give hunters and anglers better access to the land and waters they love. It also decommissions unneeded roads that aren't in use, which can help improve habitat quality. We've talked about it many, many times here, trail density and use affects wildlife. This isn't the only piece of legislation I'm watching. Congress should be considering the Recovering America's Wildlife Act soon, and I hope to also see movement on the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. To learn more about the Grasslands Act, check out episode 125 for the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Take a listen to episode 120. After you do, make your weekly phone call to your representatives and let them know how important these two acts would be to you if those folks would, you know, like co-sponsor them. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it. Till you try it and don't try it without ONX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. X Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code Cal to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com/slash hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild Axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA, and they can commercially sell Axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt Axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick, that is as close to getting your own as you can get, which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door, visit MauiNuiVenison.com, that's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Moving on. I know many of you already have that Thanksgiving turkey brining, so it's only fitting that we bring you some turkey news this week. Unfortunately, over the past several years, most of that news has not been great on the wild turkey front. They peaked at about 6.7 million birds in 2013. Turkey numbers in North America have been falling steadily, and now the National Wild Turkey Federation estimates that we've got right around 6 million birds remaining, which is still amazingly good considering the fact that when NWTF was founded in 1975, There were only around 1.5 million turkeys on the entire continent. And it's unbelievably good compared to the low point in the 1930s when there may have been as few as 30,000 birds. So we have 200 times as many turkeys now as we did at the bottom of the population curve. Still, you don't like to see an 11% drop over 8 years. Biologists attribute the decline to a factor familiar to all you regular listeners. Habitat loss. They stress that turkey numbers are determined by production and survival of young, not predation, meaning those coyotes you hear at night don't pose a population-level threat on their own. That peak number of 6.7 million may also have been too much of a good thing. Turkeys may have exceeded the carrying capacity of their habitat in many parts of the country. Hens trying to find high-quality nesting areas often have a tough time beating the crowd. The slow-to-nest hens have to nest wherever they can, even in exposed areas without adequate vegetation. The less desirable nesting locations correlate to eggs and poults being less likely to survive. Kind of a macabre animal reflection of our housing market. But not all turkeys and turkey regions are the same. The recovery of the Gould's wild turkey in New Mexico is a great example. New Mexico is home to three varieties of turkey, the Goulds, the Merriams, and the Rio Grande, and while the other two subspecies are widely distributed across the state, meaning they have lots of different habitats they can depend on, Goulds turkeys are concentrated in the extreme southwest corner of the state, in the mountainous Sky Islands. The idea of a Sky Island was first described in 1943 by the writer Nat Dodge, who called the Chiricahua Mountains in southeastern Arizona one of the homes of the Goulds turkey, quote, a mountain island in a desert sea. Isn't that a nice picture? The elevation of the mountains creates a more temperate ecosystem where plants and animals can survive, but between those ecosystems, the harsh desert creates wide zones much less hospitable to life. Depending on these small and isolated areas means that goulds are more vulnerable to any changes there. The New Mexico State Recovery Plan lists fires, limited water sources, livestock overgrazing, and loss of territory from fuel wood and grass harvesting as the most serious threats. Those factors brought the numbers of Gould's turkeys to extremely low levels a few decades ago. A study by New Mexico State University determined that there have been as few as 12 Goulds turkeys in the Peloncillo Mountains in the 1980s, and subsequent studies found only 50 to 100 individuals in the Animus Mountains and Arizona's San Luis Mountains. With flocks this small, inbreeding became a big danger. As we've covered before, when the numbers of a given species get too limited, the DNA of each generation becomes more uniform. If a new threat appears that takes advantage of a certain genetic future, a novel pathogen, for example, then all the members of that population can be wiped out much more easily. Inbreeding also makes genetic abnormalities more likely. All of this led to the state of New Mexico listing the Gould's turkey on its threatened species list way back in 1974. All right, you know, I said this was good news. It's coming. Thanks for hanging in there. Gould's turkey habitat has now recovered so well that the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish has issued a proposal to take the subspecies off the threatened list. In 2017, a recovery plan was established for Gould's populations in the Peloncillo Mountains. The plan coordinated habitat improvement on public and private lands and relocated about 60 turkeys from Arizona into the New Mexico flock, greatly improving the biodiversity there. Interestingly, it's very hard to find an accurate count of Gould's turkeys, both in New Mexico and in general. These are remote parts of the world, and conducting accurate surveys every year is very difficult. In fact, part of the recovery plan involved developing a better way of counting, which included aerial surveys. As you know, I'm not a big fan of drones, but in this particular application, I'm on board. So the move to delist the Goulds was prompted by meeting objectives for restoring suitable habitat, not by directly measuring the numbers of individual birds. If the Goulds turkey is delisted, tags to hunt them will become more abundant, which will mean more revenue to continue with their recovery. So we're not out of the woods yet, population-wise, but the woods themselves are getting better for the Goulds turkey when that Goulds population is ready to live in them. I'm going to hit you with a few fun turkey facts for the road. The Latin name for the wild turkey is Meleagris galapavo, or MG for short, and the different varieties are distinguished by a third subspecies moniker. So, the Gould's turkey is the MG Mexicana, the Merriams is MG Mariami, the Eastern is MG Silvestris, and so on. The Gould's turkey is a bit bigger than the others, with longer legs but its most distinctive feature is the white terminal band on the tail feathers, that beautiful white arc when the tom goes into full strut. One extinct subspecies, Meliagris californica, was a variety native to, you guessed it, California, and was around in abundance through the Pleistocene era, meaning up until about 10,000 years ago. No one knows for sure, but the appearance of human beings on the scene could have contributed to the species' extinction. I would say that's a safe bet, and if you are listening to this on a post-Turkey Day bloat, I think you get it. Moving on to the Hunter Safety Desk. Anti-hunting organizations sometimes try to scare the general public into opposing hunting because the activity is, quote, dangerous. The Committee to Abolish Sport Hunting, for example, has been publishing an annual report since 2003 detailing hunting accidents from across the country. Without any context, the list of deaths and injuries sounds disturbing. I'll admit hunting is more dangerous than, let's say, crochet. But most hunts aren't dangerous at all. In fact, hunting has never been safer than it is today. The Committee to Abolish Sport Hunting conveniently forgets to include this. As Meat Eater's own Pat Durkin pointed out in a recent article, deer hunting in Wisconsin is six times safer than it was 60 years ago. The state recorded 27 hunting accidents per 100,000 Wisconsin deer hunters from 1964 to 1973. From 2003 to 2013, that number dropped all the way down to four, more than six times fewer accidents. This trend holds true in other states as well. I'll rattle off some stats here. Texas. There were 12.6 hunting accidents per 100,000 licenses sold in 1966. In 2020, that number dropped all the way down to 1.8. Utah saw 126 total hunting incidents in 1957, including 22 fatalities. In 2017, there were 7 hunting incidents and 1 fatality. And the state saw 0 hunting-related fatalities between 2009 and 2013. In Maine, same story. In the 70s, there were 317 hunting incidents and 39 fatalities, according to the Portland Press-Herald. From 2000 to 2009, the state only saw 93 accidents and 6 fatalities. I got one more for you. Washington State. Hunting incidents peaked in the 70s with 441 separate incidents, which really sounds like a lot. Like a rainier-fueled Sasquatch hunt. Or, let's be honest. Washington State in the 70s. I'm thinking these were pot farm disputes conveniently covered up by hunting season. In the 2010s, that number dropped from 441 to 49. And if I'm not mistaken, quick little Google search here, yep, coincides with the opening to the medical card-carrying public dispensaries in the state. See, I uh, cracked the cold case there. Yeah, well... You know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. I should be on one of those solve the crime in 30 minutes or less TV shows. Sometimes hunters are just an easy target. Get it? Uh, that's a tasteless joke. It doesn't matter which state you're looking at. Hunting accidents, injuries, and deaths have dropped across the board. But why? First, in the 1980s, states began requiring hunter safety courses to get out in the woods. You can see this in the charts. In every state I looked at, hunting incidents remained steady throughout the 60s and 70s and began to fall in the 80s. By the 90s, states started to see a marked decline in the number of folks killed or injured in the field. Hunter Orange requirements likely helped as well, and Durkin reports that reduced deer drives and hunting for tree stands also played a role. Deer drives can be dangerous if too many hunters are occupying a small section of land and aren't communicating well. Tree stands increase visibility and allow hunters to shoot towards the ground at an angle, which reduces the chances of a bullet ending up, uh, someplace it shouldn't. Maybe this goes without saying, but keep it up, everyone. Safety and firearms go hand in hand. Here are a few things to remember the next time you're out in the woods. Treat every firearm as if it's loaded. Don't point a firearm at anything you're not willing to destroy. Keep your finger off the trigger at all times until you are ready to fire. And know your target and what's beyond your target. Oh, and you know that safety's there for a reason. Utah publishes an annual report detailing each year's hunting incidents, and it's a sobering reminder that you can't let your guard down when you're carrying a firearm. In 2019, one hunter was removing a shotgun. When the barrel caught on his foot while his finger was on the trigger, the safety was off, and his 12-gauge removed his middle toe. Another elk hunter that same year shot himself in the foot when he slipped and fell backwards down a hill. The safety on his 308 was off, and the wound in his foot was bad enough that he had to be rescued with a helicopter. Second, remember to wear your safety harness in the tree stand. Tree stand accidents are the most common kind of hunting accident, but they can be avoided with the simple and sometimes inconvenient habit of always wearing your safety harness. Finally, always, always clearly identify your target before you even shoulder your firearm. If you can't clearly identify the vital area of your target animal, you have no business pulling the trigger. I know, I'm speaking to the choir here. Hunters are some of the most responsible, safety-conscious people you'll meet, and our track record has only gotten better over time. Still, we can't let our guard down. Hunting accidents give ammo to the anti-hunting crowd and can turn the general public against the activity, which could result in a lack of access, not just a lack of friendly waving over the steering wheel on country roads. The country of France is a great example. Each year, about 20 people die in hunting-related accidents among the country's 1.2 million hunters. For some context, there are about 600,000 hunters in Wisconsin, and the state has averaged less than one fatality per year since 2006. Some French politicians, probably the ones that survived hunting season, have accused hunters of disregarding safe hunting practices, and there's a real possibility that the country bans hunting on the weekend, which I would suppose would limit the amount of crossfire. 20 people every year. 20 people every year. Somebody's got to explain that to me. I mean, I know the French are into extreme sports and wingsuits and skiing at your own risk. Maybe they just have a different version of hunting. Anyway, we're on the right track here in the U.S., but let's remember the French, who have given us the examples of democracy and revolution, are also showing us what we hunters could be losing by forgetting safety in the woods. And lastly... In an odd holiday barbecue miracle of sorts, Georgia hunters that hang a stand in the Glasscock to Jefferson, back to Glasscock, up through Hancock, and then cutting over to the Taliaferro lineup in Greene County? That type of region? You folks have the legal opportunity at harvesting a red stag. Georgia State Biologist Charlie Killmaster, that's K-I-L-L-M-A-S-T-E-R, Killmaster, boy, if that's the biologist's name, What's the chief warden's name? I'm sure it's not Tinkerbell. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. sorry. Your name is... It's Taserface? That's right. Do you shoot tasers out of your face? It's metaphorical! (laughs) Anyway, Killmaster thinks the deer is likely an escapee from a high fence operation that is licensed nearby, the owner of which does not want the animal back, The Georgia DNR would like to test the animal for disease no matter who or how it is killed, and they have notified processing facilities in the area. Here's a quote from Charlie Killmaster. He's been bedding down in the day and moving at night. He's looking for love, but he isn't going to find it. Anyone who sees the deer, captures images of it, or needs to report its destruction, is asked to contact Killmaster at 706 557 3350. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeateater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. And lastly, especially to you uh, Georgia potential red deer butchers, Check out www.steeldealers.com and find a local steel dealer to get you set up with a clean, quiet chainsaw that you can fill with canola oil and make butchering a breeze this holiday season. Or, you know, cut down trees. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. at seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance Axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis deer sticks, Sent right to your door, visit MauiNuiVenison.com, that's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.